Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. We are powered by the Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. This podcast is our eddy in the rushing waters of local journalism. We are glad that you're taking some of your time to listen to us chat with the people who shape our local community. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Remax Key Properties, a family-owned, full-service real estate brokerage specializing in residential, luxury, commercial, new construction, and ranch and land properties. Their new state-of-the-art facility at 42 Greenwood Avenue is a modern, collaborative space and the new home of the Ben Don't Break podcast recording studio. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, publisher of The Source. Thank you for joining us. Today we have... Representative Jason Croft, House District 54. Jason represents the district in the Oregon State Legislature, elected in November 2020. Jason is currently in his second term of office. During his time as a legislator, he has worked on a range of policy issues, helping to promote affordable housing production, respond to the climate crisis, invest in child care and education, foster safer communities, and more. Jason and his family live in Bend, Oregon, where they enjoy exploring the great outdoors. Raised in a military and union family, Jason is the fourth generation of his family to call Oregon home. Hey, thanks for taking some time today, Jason. Yeah, my pleasure. Nice to see you again. So uh, I don't know when people are going to be listening to this podcast, but you are very close to heading over for the next legislative session. I'm, I'm correct? Yeah, we are here on Thursday and on Monday I'll be over there for four at 830 in the morning. So before we jump into this session, just uh, uh, because so much is happening with regard to uh, the last session, those legislators, maybe give people just a sense of what it was like being a legislature in the last session where legislators walked out, when they came back, you, it was full court press, and how's that going to affect this, this session? Well, it's, it's timely. We just had the Supreme Court ruling a couple hours ago yeah. um, as we're sitting down to tape this. You know, the session started out um, on the House side very normal, right? We were, the first part of the session is we're working through policy bills, and then the sort of second half of the session is finalization of those bills and finalization of the budget. So things are sort of moving along on the House side. Um, you know, you show up on certain days and watch House floor, there's a ton of bipartisan work being done. And then if you show up on other days, you know, I was a chief sponsor of the a major gun safety bill that last session, mm-hmm. you'll you'll see some of the um, sort of difference of opinion that that um, exists in the House. On the Senate side, there had been, in, you know, in some respects, a higher level of tension. There were um, uh, reading bills in their entirety on the Senate floor. There was there was just more tension than the walkout. Happened. Right. So um, that just sort of broke session completely apart. Um, and we didn't know it was, it was a it was a difficult and stressful time. You there's sort of a momentum to the session as you're working on your bills and policies for your community, and you're trying to figure out how the budget and what the school budget is going to look like, and what can we have to invest in housing, et cetera. And then there's sort of ground to a halt. Right. And we didn't know are folks coming back? Are we going to have to come back to do a special session to pass? But there's certain things we just absolutely have to do, right? I mean, that's, that's what that's kind of what I remember about that yeah. time was you know in addition to being you know, things stopping, there's also the, uh, was the uncertainty of, are they ever coming back or is it ever going to get under, you you weren't really in a position to even talk to bill sponsors or people impacted by these bills about how that outcome was going to be. And there's some just base things we need to get done. We need to pass a K through 12 budget so that kids can, teachers can get paid and we can have our schools up and running. So it was, it was a frustrating, difficult time. It was very frustrating to see, a small minority of legislators 
bringing the, the session to a halt. And then when folks, a few of them did come back, just an incredible flurry of activity to try to get right. things done. I mean, I will say, as a House Democrat, we just kept governing. We just kept working on our stuff. We just kept getting our budget priorities together. We just kept getting things prepared because we knew at some point this work has to get done. Um, so there was a level of frustration, but we just sort of kept working. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, and again, whenever people are listening to this, but uh, the decision just came down from the Oregon Supreme Court that those 10 legislature, legislators are not going to be able to uh, run for office again. and um, Run for their, their office. Their right? office. Yeah. And um, what I'm curious about is how is that going to affect the set? I mean, you're, it's, they just came out, and now they're walking in on Monday uh, – Happy campers, I imagine. Yeah. My birthday cake and <laughs> um, I, I'm not going to speak for them. I'll speak yeah. for myself. I'm sure. going to show up to work on Monday, and we work as hard as I can for the 35 days. We have a ton of work to be done. I'm glad there was a ruling. We needed some clarity from the Supreme Court about Measure 113. I, I felt like what I heard last election cycle, what I heard from the will of the voters, is if we elect you, we expect you to show up and get to work. Right. And we have significant work to do in the housing front and housing production and helping folks who are unhoused right now. We have significant work to work on the addiction crisis in the state. I'm ready to, I've been working at this and right. I'm, I'm going to show up on Monday and work as hard as I can. I mean, I got to imagine if you're um, one of the 10 and you realize this is your last legislative session, you'd want to do some good work. I mean, my, I wouldn't expect that there would be, I expect there'll be speeches and some of the grandstanding that goes with, with that kind of politics. But ultimately you, you've got to want to get some of, some of the stuff back for your district. You don't want them to wait an, another session given that the last one was such a, such a, such a uh, disaster. Yeah. I mean, I, again, Aaron, I can only really speak yeah. for myself. So yeah. for myself, I'm entrusted to represent the 70,000 people here in Bend. And so I try my hardest to represent this community, Central Oregon, and this state. Um, and that's always been my approach. I show up and go to work. And when I come home, I tell voters what I've done. And then I have a pretty incredible job performance review coming up in November. <laughs> uh, so that's always been my approach. Right. Uh, so you, each legislator gets a couple bills. Yep. What are you uh, taking over there? Do you have anything, or what's your? Yeah, so in the sh in the short session and the even years, we get we can request two bill drafts. Mm -hmm. So um, most of my work this um, prepare for this session is the the joint committee that's tackling the addiction crisis. I'm co chair with Senator Lieber out of the Portland area. Um, so I have one bill that's sort of in that that's. It's called a placeholder bill. It's a it's a if we case we need it. So the the bill that I have drafted is a bill to provide some level of stability in the funding for our child advocacy centers, like the kids center here in town, mm -hmm. and our domestic violence and sexual assault service providers, like um, Saving Grace. So right now, we provide some state funding to those organizations to the Department of Justice. It's always one time funding, so mm -hmm. every time they have to sort of ask for it, what we're trying to do is sort of bake it into the budget a little bit more, mm -hmm. so there's at least this. Um, a little extra, extra stability yeah. for the funding um, in those services. I mean, I think, I mean, you know about those organizations. I think they do incredible work yep. here in our town and, and they, to serve our kids and our uh, um, violence survivors, they have to really 
piece together funding, right? They're yeah. they're getting some state funding, they're getting some foundational money, and they're doing fundraisers, right? Events. I think you've I think your organization. Yeah, we we that. sponsor Saving Grace sponsors works closely with our Happy Girls Run, and yeah. we help them produce their heroes. And I, you know, we just had Cassie on the podcast a couple of weeks ago um, before she transitioned, and I've spoken to them extensively about the fact that um, they don't know what they're going to have from year to year. And right. I mean, all nonprofits are in that, but they're increasingly, they serve as a core function. It's not optional. Saving, the, Saving Grace yeah. and Kids Center are not like services that, oh, whoops, they didn't get funded. I right. mean, it would be a crisis if that happened. So No, and I, you know, when I was a deputy district attorney here, I served in our child abuse MDT, multiple multiple disciplinary team that the Kids Center facilitated, and I served on a domestic violence council. So I've always held those organizations in high regard. They are a core function. And when I think about community safety and I think about the public safety system we should have, to me it starts with how do we care for and how do we help um, victims and survivors of crime heal? When you... You came from uh, juvenile justice and ran for the House on platform of representing families, children, youth. That was part of um, your effort when you were even in the Park District. Um, but you've uh, recently been getting bumped up. You've been getting on committees with greater um, authority and, and governmental power. Has your mission changed being over in legislature with this bigger vision now? I mean, you represent us, but you're also representing and working for the, the entire state. How... How has that morphed? How do you feel that's morphed since you've gotten over there? What do you see? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, all 60 of us represent essentially 70,000 people each. Right. And so my core responsibility is to this community and these constituents. But there are issues of statewide importance that impact us and all Oregonians. So I feel like I've had the opportunity to, to do both, right? I've, I've worked on legislation to help provide funding for our, our city and county's joint homeless response office. I worked on legislation to um, uh, start developing a piece of st state land on the east side of town and have um, acreage in that piece of land set aside for affordable housing and six acres set aside for educator housing. It'll be the first educator housing project um, in the state. And then I do chair the House Judiciary Committee. I've, I've worked on, and I'm co-chair of this Joint Addiction Committee, so I have worked on sort of larger issues. But, you know, when we're talking about addiction, there are people in this community who are, who are, who are struggling with addiction. Um, we see the impacts here in our town. We need to build out the resources and build out pathways for people to right. get help. That is, that is something that happens here in Bend in Central Oregon. It's something that obviously happens in Portland and other parts of the state. Sure. How do you see, do you, um, working more closely on those addiction issues and, you know, given that you're in discussions with people from a metropolitan area in Portland, how, how is the crisis here different and, um, how does it, how, just what does it look like from an impact standpoint? Yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, in, in some ways, fundamentally the same, right? So folks who are living on the edge, who are right. struggling with addiction or behavioral health problems and just on the margins that. We heard in this committee, we've been having committee hearings since the fall, um, and we've heard from all four corners of the state. Um, I think some of the issues that you see in Portland are much more visible um, than they are here, but I also think we have these little pockets where folks 
or maybe a little bit less out of sight, but still in crisis, right? We think about people yeah. sort of living out in the woods in, in different yeah. in different areas. But well, Portland's got such a larger percentage, it's larger percentage, larger number. Yeah. It's it is. I feel like um, I feel like when we're talking about folks who are homeless and folks who are struggling with addiction and behavioral health issues, like I feel like we can take and we have taken positive steps. Here in Bend in Central Oregon, I, I do feel like this problem is fixable. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel the same way about Portland. It's a larger scale. I, I think the, the foundation of the bones of that town still exists. I think it's just been a real tough handful of years for them. Well, and my question is, like, they, you know, as an urban center, they get a lot more resources than we do here. So, yeah. you know, perhaps they're better able to accommodate. I mean, that would be the question I have is, you know, Central Oregon is... You know, we, we don't have the population. We don't get the funding that those metropolitan right. areas do. So how does that look for, you know, addiction on the streets? Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I feel like we've all seen the um, photos and news reports of, of what's happening in pockets of, of Portland. They do get more. I mean, it's just a larger area. Just, right. just, you know, more money goes to Portland public schools because they got a more kids right. than Ben and more <laughs> money goes to Ben than Burns and just right. part of its population. Um, but I also say Portland plays an important role in the state, right? It is a, one of, it's like the, one of the main economic drivers in this state as far as you're talking about like producing tax revenue and things of that nature. So um, we have to be mindful of what Portland's going through. But I think in this addiction space, we're trying to fashion a framework and an infrastructure that can serve all four corners of the state. We've heard from folks from the coast. We've heard from folks from Eastern Oregon. There are people in crisis in those communities. Help is going to look a little bit different in different parts of the state. You played a big role in crafting some of the language around uh, Measure 110 or what the proposed changes. Maybe we can talk about Measure 110 for a little bit. Um, I mean, Measure 110 will be the biggest political topic, I would say, going forward. There. But when I look at where, I mean, we editorialize this, when I look at where the changes are heading, yeah, very far apart on this from uh, Democrat, Republican. I mean, what's your thought on that? No, I I think that's actually really well said. So we have been tasked with taking a holistic view at our um, sort of addiction response and public safety response. And so we've, we've had this joint committee. We've been meeting um, since the fall. So I think we're the only committee that's been meeting regularly, sort of outside normal legislative times. Um, and so the framework that we've put together that we're proposing um, starting on Monday is enhancing the funding we have for youth prevention, making sure that we have a strategic plan when it comes to substance abuse treatment for our young people, making sure that um, we know that medication works for people struggling with opioid addiction, breaking down barriers to that. People who are serving jail sentences, making sure that they can have access to that. We actually have a program here in Deschutes County Jail that's funded by Measure One Ten Dollars that hmm. that gets people medication while they're serving jail time. And what we see is when they leave jail, they're more likely to continue with that medication and continue in treatment. If we sort of get them a head start right. while in the local jail. Um, and we have a list of shovel-ready projects throughout the state that we're looking to fund. We're doing a gaps analysis. Okay, what communities need what? That's the behavioral health framework. On the public safety side, we're providing clarity to our definition of drug delivery, right? We're going to make sure our prosecutors and our police officers have the tools they need to prosecute people who are um, 
basically profiting off the addiction of others. Uh, we're proposing legislation to create these safe harbors. If you are selling drugs within close proximity of a shelter or a treatment facility or in a, in a city park, there's going to be potential enhanced penalties for that. The one space that we sort of, there's some disagreement on is we have proposed um, making the possession of a small amount of drugs a Class C misdemeanor. And, and the purpose of that is sort of two things bubbled up in all these conversations. We heard from law enforcement. I heard from both local law enforcement and law enforcement throughout the state. Hey, there's things that we're seeing on the street that we want to be able to intervene and stop, but we don't want to necessarily take that person to jail. We don't want to take that person to jail. We just want to, like, stop what's happening in the moment. Right. And we heard in the treatment space, the, the people who are most successful in treatment are the people who sort of wake up and say, today is the day I want help. Mm-hmm. And we have access to help to them that day. But, and that's, not everybody wakes up that day and saying it, but we've also, it's been clear to us that every time we make a contact with a person in crisis with treatment, there's a value in that. It might take one contact or five contacts or ten times, but every time we make that contact, there's a value in that. And so what we've tried to do is bridge those two things that we're hearing. All right, police need a tool, right? They have limited ability to sort of intervene and take drugs off the street with it being a violation as opposed to a low-level crime. So let's give police that tool, and let's create programs so they have an alternative to jail. So what we're talking about is um, police can intervene, stop that, and connect them with treatment. And if folks connect with treatment and make that connection, they don't have to go through the court process. They don't have to have conviction. So we're trying to... It doesn't go on the record. Yeah, we're trying to have a rehabilitative approach. To this and so, when I look at this entire framework, I mean, the, the I guess the source of tension between us and our proposal and some of my Republican colleagues is we think it should be a class C misdemeanor, they think it should be a class A misdemeanor. Yeah, so it's, there's a ton that we agree upon in this space. Um, so I'm hopeful that we're going to pass a, a pretty robust package this session. One of the things I, I talked about this with Phil Chang with regard to these measures that roll out from the electorate, at the, you know, the subtle legislators coming together and right. deciding that they want this is that, um, and, and people point to Measure 110 and they're like, oh, this has been so slow. This has been such a slow rollout. And, you know, I, I just, my, my personal feeling is, is it slow? Because every time I see these, there's a certain amount of time that it takes for the engine of government to get going. And in that space, I saw it with the pot rollout, you know, in that space between when it's when it's when the voters want it and the time that the legislators finally finish tinkering and you never finish tinkering on. There is a space where everybody jumps in and they just pile on people like you who are uh, trying to make this thing happen. That's how it feels to measure 110. Was it slow? Getting to the point to to this point, do you feel, or is it this is the way the pace of government? Well, let me talk broader than Measure One Ten. So we had under I can really I'll speak mainly to my time that I've been in office. Right, twenty twenty one was my first session. Previous that we had sort of underinvested in behavioral health care and underinvested in substance abuse treatment. We won over one billion dollars of investments in behavioral health in the twenty one session. So. Yeah. One, stabilize the behavioral health workforce. We have a 1,000 uh, residential um, behavioral health beds coming online in the next um, 12 to 18 months from those 2021 investments. So we're building out that infrastructure. Yes, that takes time. 
what we're trying to identify is what are immediate steps we can take right now? And then how do we have a long-term vision, a long-term commitment to the substance abuse treatment infrastructure right. that we need? So um, not any one person has all the answers. There's no sort of magic solution to this, but it's about having um, a commitment and a vision. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to identify ways that we can get monies into the local community as quickly as possible. Right. And we have identified a couple different funding sources, so there won't be a delay in that, in that, in that step. And we're, when we're trying to also figure out what are the projects that just need a little bit of state help to come online. So um, one of our treatment providers is proposing uh, some additional capacity here in this community. They say they can probably have it done within a year. Okay, that's something that we're considering, right. things that can be done immediately, because I don't think folks want to hear you know, what the 10-year plan is. They want some immediate action, right? I well, even, well. What, even what you're talking about, 21 to, we're sitting here in 24, that's four years. I mean, right. I, I just think that when I, I read a lot of commentary on this space and people are, you know, they come from a position like, we knew all this stuff when we started and we didn't do anything about it. When, to me, I think everybody in the community, especially, I mean, there's not even another program like this in the United States right. and you're on the forefront. I just don't think it's going to come fully bloomed out of legislators heads. Well, and I, so part of the challenge is multiple things happen in that 2021 time period, right? A uh, global pandemic that folks who are on the sort of living on the edge got pushed over the edge and just, a substantial increase of that fentanyl. was me on the edge. Yeah, just <laughs> over the edge, <laughs> um, and just a substantial increase in in fentanyl in our in our state. Right, if you look at the overdose deaths and that have gone up in Oregon the last three years, directly attributable to fentanyl. I left the DA's office in January of 2021. I'd heard a little bit about fentanyl, and it had just it was moving its way from the East Coast to the West mm-hmm. Coast. Highly addictive, highly lethal, cost a dollar. I mean, nothing. Right. It's cheap, more addictive, and more dangerous than other drugs that I, uh, cases that I'd worked on in my career. And it's just, it's been a, it's, it's, it's changed what we've seen in our, in our communities. Yeah. Jason, we are at the conclusion of our time for our podcast. If We're not going to do part two? We will. We're going to do two, three. And, well, that depends how your party goes in November, your job. Your job, <laughs> job performance review. <laughs> performance review. Uh, anything you want to say to listeners before we, uh, before we cut loose? No, I, I just appreciate the opportunity. I, I will say this about local media in this community. It's just different. I have a different experience here in this town because of your paper and the bulletin on TV taking a, sort of a heightened interest in local issues yeah I, I have colleagues who their papers don't even necessarily do an endorsement process yeah the campaign season rare, more rare. Uh, and that's because of sort of a lack of local resources in their local media i do think what your paper does and the bulletin does makes a difference in our community yeah. and so i I've, I've appreciate how engaged your folk your paper has been so thanks for having me here today thank you well I, i'll just slip in my plug then if you uh like it you can get there we have our member program uh for listeners and you can find it on the website and help keep us rolling so jason thanks for coming in and yeah, good luck pleasure. in the session i i think it's going to be a, i don't know how it's going to go i'll say i i hope it goes well i know you can only speak for yourself but yeah. uh I, I would if it were me and I and I lost in court and I was getting the boot. I'd think, well, I'm, this is my last legislative session. I better get something done. We have important jobs ahead of us, <laughs> and I hope everybody shows up to do the work. Yeah. Great.
Thanks for being here. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ben Don't Break podcast powered by The Source Weekly. To read, hear, and see more of what we do, go to bensource.com.